originally produced by our team at Ingenuity Radio in 2002, Searching for the New Liberalism is a nine-part series adapted for this podcast, The Life of a Servant. Welcome to Part 1. This is the introductory segment and features Howard Astor, Tom Axworthy, Richard O'Hagan, John Roberts, and Lloyd Axworthy. Good morning. My name is Howard Astor. Um, I'm told I'm one of the co-hosts of this this conference. I'm not sure what that means, but good morning nonetheless. Um, and welcome to the uh, conference entitled Fixing for the New Liberalism. Uh, let me start with a bit of another biographical note. For me, this conference started some four or five years ago. Um, at that time, I had a conversation with my chum, who was a university student, who was at UGO. And he reminded me of a conversation that both he and I had with Senator Keith Davey a few years previous to us. It was Senator Davey who, during the course of a lunch conversation with myself and my son, turned to me and asked a very poignant question. I remember the moments very, very distinctively. He said, what kind of liberal society do you want to live in, and what kind of liberal society do you want to pass on to your son? And that question remained unanswered for me for many years, for these many years. But for both my son and myself, the question remained very, very vital. I recall in subsequent years, my son turning to me every now and then and asking, do you really remember that question? Well, don't forget it, and make sure that sooner or later you and your friends try to answer that question for us, for the next generation. Well, it took so many years, but here we are. At least I think this is a start to an answer. I think the question is still very, very vital, and that's why it is my hope that this conference, Searching for the New Liberalism, will provide at least a beginning to some of the answers to the question for the next generation. Let me pass quickly over a long period of history. I remember this summer, I picked up the uh, Herald Tribune. I was in, uh, in France. It was August 18, 2002. And it was a warm, sunny morning, and it was near Krakow, Poland. There were over two million people assembled in a field called Bonia, which is just outside of Krakow. Those two million people constituted over five percent of the entire Polish population. And they were assembled in the field, and of course they were there to see Pope Saint uh, Paul II on his last visit, probably his last visit to the homeland. It's very, very interesting. The Pope chose to address the problems of, and when he quotes, the noisy propaganda of liberalism, of freedom without responsibility. He called on his people to fight persistent poverty with what he called, quote, creative parody. A very, very intriguing phrase. He then asked his countrymen to help impoverished neighbors support their families and educate their children. 
It is astonishing to me, and I think to many other people, that the Pope would address the problems of liberalism in Poland to his countrymen in those peculiar circumstances. A few weeks earlier, again in Europe, it was Prime Minister Tony Blair who had invited President Bill Clinton to England to a think tank to find creative solutions to the transparency and plight of the new loader, which in many ways is the new liberalism. And later in August, again in France, the Socialist Party gets together, as they usually do in late summer, at a seaside resort, to discuss problems of politics, but again, their agenda mirrors the agenda of the new, new liberalism. Clearly, the questions and the lemmas require at the heart of liberalism are being discussed in many places by many people from many political positions. So now it is our turn to take up this discussion and debate and to relocate us into Canada. In many ways, Canada is the best place to carry forward this discussion on liberalism. One can argue, and I would at any rate, that Canada has told the most successful liberal regime of any country in the world. Indeed, if one takes the name of political parties seriously, namely that they reflect something about the political ideology from which they spring, and Canadian liberalism is a powerful reminder of how successful the ideology and the party with clause of name from of, has been in this country. No other country in the world can claim such a successful liberal party for so long directing government and by extension affecting the structure of that society in liberal direction. But we shall also be reminded, I think, that liberalism has also been a very, very sensible political ideology and political theory over the past 200 years. One reading of the history of liberalism would assert that it is due to the failure of liberalism that socialism arose. Indeed, it is the critical interplay between these two competing political realities and theories that much of the creative politics of the past 150 years has been tied out. It is the unfinished business of liberalism in many ways that social democrats allies today. Also, one must not forget that liberalism has been the focus of an ongoing and a time service critique from Blotinus, of course, namely the political right. Historically, it began with the critique of liberalism by a decaying aristocratic conservatism. But by the late 19th century, that critique became merged with the forms of philosophical right of people such as Joseph de Maistre or people in and so on. We cite liberalism with modernity, the collapse of values, and the excesses of unfettered economic greed. By the mid-20th century, this critique became extended into a more sectoral terms by political philosophers such as Neil Strauss and Alistair McIntyre. The viability of this critique of liberalism today is sustained by its communitarians, communitarians such as Charles Taylor, and many others. The base in political philosophy may appear to be far removed from the struggles which take place in the political arena, where resources must be allocated and reallocated, where competing interests fly for political ascendancy, where power and influence predominate. But it's clear today, wherever you go, that during the early years of the 21st century, the search for fundamental political ideas, for vital and viable political discourse, is taking many people, from the Pope to Tony Blair, back to the discourse on liberalism. 
So what is it? What is it about Canada which has allowed us to maintain liberal discourse so close to the exercise of political power? Is Canada a liberal society? How have political structures, institutions, and policies in Canada over the past century reflected liberal values and liberal discourse? And can these same structures, institutions, and policies continue to reflect a viable liberal discourse in this new century? That is why we are here today, to extend the Canadian discourse on liberalism further. So what do we hope for, what do some of us hope for over the past over the next two days. Well, the participants here represent various professions, perspectives, and in concrete terms, there will be a, a text emerging from this conference, a book. And for those of, those of you who are, have or are in the process of phoning up your papers, let me just say that the timetable is very, very tight. Uh, we have a commitment that the book will be across the country in all chapters and indigo stores by November 23rd, which means that it will be a great Christmas gift for all Canadians. In the phone book stores as well, of course. Second, at least it's my hope, given my past, that if there is a will on the part of the participants here, that we should be able to extend the intellectual discourse on liberalism in Canada on either an annual or a biannual basis. And that question about where we go to from here seems to be as part of the unfinished business of this conference at Sunday afternoon. And third, given my background as a retired professor of political science, it is my hope that the consequence of this conference will be that we can reintroduce students of Canadian politics, both from the high school level to the university level, into the discourse on liberalism. I find it sorrowful that the discourse on Canadian liberalism has had such bad press, such, such terrible academic reviews, and has all but been purged from the curriculum of the university. It is my hope that with some hard work over a long period of time, all of us can help and repair the damage. It is indeed, I would argue, our duty and obligation to the next generation to make sure that we do so. Let me take a few small housekeeping notes before I pass over the mic to Tom. First of all, your words are being recorded. I have to advise you of the sort. And secondly, it is being recorded live and archived uh, by ingenuity.com, so we will have access to anything that being shared with the technical comments, which is how does the, the mic system work. Uh, there are mics at each table that the interpreter here, and if you push the mic mute, it, you'll hear a green light, that means that the mic is on. So if you don't want anyone to hear what you're saying, make sure it's not on. If you do speak, please press the button and uh, your your voice will be uh, heard. If anybody has overhead, then if you kindly pass them up to myself and I'll get them organized to project for overhead for your presentation. Uh, just come and see me and I can get that uh, organized. 
Again, thank you for coming, and uh, I think we're in for a very, very interesting two days. Thank you, Howard, Paul Ladies and gentlemen, um, first on, again, some of how they hope that the conference uh, proceeds. Uh, papers have been prepared. They have been on the Internet, uh, www.liberalism.ga. Some papers have been in paper form, uh, but those that have been submitted uh, are on the web now. Uh, so some people have asked for copies of the papers. This whole conference is based on volunteers, um, and uh, where we haven't had the copy papers when they're electronically on the net, uh, you haven't. <laughs> so please go to your computers to see those papers which have been submitted before. And uh, as Howard said, and uh, I want to thank uh, Dennis Mills, who's an example of volunteerism here, and Dennis has played a great role in putting his arm in Ingenuity Radio, and Ingenuity Canada, and, uh, and that is typical of everybody here who has volunteered their time and their effort to travel come together on this weekend to discuss these important issues. I can say that for every person here, Howard and John myself have had requests from at least three or four others that they could attend. There's a, there's a tremendous push for trying to inject ideas into the political system. So I want to thank all of you who wrote paper, who've been actively commentators, who have taken notes, who have helped uh, raise money for this conference, for your tremendous so we want those, though, who have prepared the papers on the formal panel to speak for no more than 15 minutes. And uh, we have asked others to comment or to be the first discussion, uh, to lead the discussion. And um, and uh, uh, we would like people to restrict your remarks to five minutes of the, of the commentator. And then those of you who want to introduce, and you have an hour and more for discussion around each panel after you, you finish the discussion. But you please just introduce yourself and just say a word about yourself so people know who you are. You only do that one. Uh, so then we are trying to stay calm this morning rather than going around the table with, uh, with 50 or 70 uh, people. When I heard Clint's word from Ottawa quite some time ago, I worked for a man called uh, Walter Gordon, who was a management consultant. And he had some very good advice for me then as a young student that I tried to take with me ever since in attending meetings or attending conferences like this. Walter said that there were three things you should try to get out of the conference. The first is what were the major themes or the consensus that seemed to emerge? Be aware so you can, so you can try and see if there's some cohesion that comes out of the discussion. Secondly, is there a fact or a point of view which surprises you? And thirdly, having seen what consensus may or may not emerge, and seeing what may or may not emerge, what do you resolve to work on from what you learned at this conference? What do you take away with? And personally, what will you try to do about it? And that's what Howard said, that this is a, we hope to be an ongoing process. If one looks at the papers that have already been in, you begin to see some of the first elements of Mr. Gordon's 
analysis, what are some overarching themes. Virtually every paper talks about what should be the new priorities for the next decade or the next half century. We all know the tremendous effort Canada has made on the deficit reduction fight. We know, too, that for a generation we have been debating the Constitution, Quebec's role in Canada. Those debates aren't over, but they may not have the primacy for the next few years as they have had for the past generation. So what is the agenda? What, what is it that we can work on? And a variety of the papers, and I'm sure all of you have that, your own prescription on how our efforts should be channeled. So priority setting is one task for you, The second is, and uh, paper on the role of the state have reflected that. Once you decide as a group how to promote the values of philosophy and liberalism forward, that's the what. You're going to get to the how. There, what is the role of the state? What new mechanisms do we need? What is the role of the voluntary sector, the not-for-profit sector? Many of the people here have been active in political parties about that and not, have looked for other avenues for social change. So there, in the Professor Boring's paper and the David Harris submission, they make the point that with all the changes, reinventing government or thinking of new ways of doing things have, have not been part really of our agenda. The mechanisms of change have not been much addressed in our country in the recent time, as perhaps they should be. And so the how is part of the new liberal, which is how to carry our objectives forward. And lastly, this is in Lorna Mars's paper on higher education, where she begins by saying, what is the accountability? What do citizens and students really know about the value of our institutions? What is the information exchange? And that leads into a whole range of discussion. It's in my other paper on foreign policy about new means of using the internet and citizen engagement. This conference is one reflection of it. This is, there's a thirst everywhere. A questioning of institutions, many of them, public service, state, party as institutions have changed. How does one engage citizens in that noblest of causes, self-government? And that's a, that's a theme that has also leads to those cases that have already been submitted. So we have the what, and we have the how, and we have citizen engagement. I'm sure there will be many more items which are added to that agenda, but I want to begin by thanking you all for volunteering your time and your to move the cause of liberalism forward. We will begin. I'll call on Richard O'Hagan to be the moderator of our first session. Richard himself has had a long background in the party as communication advisor to Mr. Pierce and Mr. Trudeau. He had some experience in Washington and trying to promote the Canadian viewpoint there, and he's been a very senior manager with the Bank of Montreal for many years since. So, Richard, I'll turn over to you to Try to keep our discussions to 15 minutes. And people can, by the way, um, either, whatever you feel more comfortable at, uh, either speaking from this mic or speaking from the, from the round table. So, Richard, to you. Um, um, I think that, well, I say thanks in the uh, perfunctory sense. I think, though, that, uh, before we begin, I think you all owe a significant vote of thanks to Tom Eckworthy for, uh, uh, 
for initiating this conference. And uh, if it, just a word of advice, uh, if at some future time you have a lunch or dinner at Tom with teams uh, on the surface driver pointless and, uh, or without uh, a vector, and well, if if it's some future date, you have lunch with Tom and uh, or dinner, and uh, he says, uh, "I think we need a conference on that, whatever that is." Then uh, my advice is pay attention because uh, it could result in something as uh, useful as that. Promises to be um, Legacy is a word very much in vogue these days, and. Um, and uh, it's a perfectly good word, and uh, a one I think that any uh, self-respecting liberal in the party sense certainly uh, should be uh, it should be uh, proud of, and uh, it uh, it uh, enables uh, the liberal party I think to serve uh, our society uh, to very considerable effect down the years, and that's already been referred to by Howard Astor, so. I won't, I won't go on about it. That's the substance and the subject of our first, uh, panel. And it's a very distinguished panel, I might say, uh, in every respect. Uh, we have four participants and I will just say a word about each of them before they're invited to, uh, begin their presentation. Um, John Roberts, uh, who, and they will speak in, uh, order of their listing on your program if you have it here, namely John Roberts, boy, that's pretty. Isabella McGraw and Alison Lope. Uh, John Roberts uh, was a member of Parliament for 16 years, and in the course of those years, half those years, in fact, he was uh, a member of uh, a member of Capitol. Before that, since then, he's had uh, he's been uh, active in academic life, and at one point, in fact, uh, did a major study of published, in fact, on the, the German philosopher uh, Wilhelm Humboldt. Tom Humboldt. Um, he's now a chairman of an, a firm of international film consultants and is the associate editor of uh, the Literary Review of Canada. Um, the, um, and I think with that, perhaps I'll uh, let you begin, John, and uh, then I'll introduce each of the other three speakers when their turn comes. But just one point, wouldn't you please, we're having each of the three speakers present and then after that, the, uh, the commentators will be invited to comment. And following that, the, we'll be open to, uh, to the broader discussion. So, Mr. Roberts, please. Um, and Jim, and good morning. One note of apology first, uh, for reasons which are entirely inexplicable. My paper is not on the web, or at least not yet, but I'm told it will be in a seat. Uh, there are, however, uh, some uh, copies of it available, but there are only ten, so you have to really, really, really want it okay, if, you, if you're going to take it now. Otherwise, these are for those few friends of mine who will be very much interested. Uh, I noticed in the, that the organizers in the listen put me down under the simple rubric of philosophy, with uh, a rather large subject. I've noticed that my uh, academic friends tend to regard me as a politician, and my political friends tend to regard me as an academic. It's been a great handicap in both of my solutions of uh, My understanding is that I was to uh, give a, uh, a short uh, analysis of the intellectual foundations of liberalism 
its appropriateness for the Canadian context and some understanding of its certain shortcomings. Howard Astor has already done all of that. Um, but that is how I'm going to deter me in any way from saying that it is that I intended to tell it. I start off, in the paper, I start off with, from the 50s, in effect, describing briefly the liberalism of that time, which was the conventional wisdom, largely held in Western democracies that used to be the politically correct, if you like, the appropriate pragmatic framework within which the solutions to political uh, social problems could be found. So that you had political scientists like Daniel Bell and others, for instance, talking about the end of ideology, just as more recently uh, commentators and uh, used to, until very recently were talking about the end of politics as a description of that time. It was the automatic framework in which uh, responsible and reasonable people uh, tackled problems. The foundation for that conventional liberalism uh, in the 1950s really goes back, I think, to four uh, essential historical uh, support. Uh, theory, or natural uh, law theory, uh, like the utilitarianism and the argument for skepticism or liberalism, which I'll come back to in one. And there's Air Force and papers a brief description of how these four sometimes complementary and sometimes contradictory uh, explanations of support for liberal views intertwine. Uh, to the uh, intuition position which we uh, had in the 1960s. I said that the argument for skepticism is in some way not the most important of these, but is the glue that brings all of them together. Because uh, natural like theory and uh, natural law theory can be used deeply as a base for writing conservative conclusions as liberal conclusions. Utilitarianism is in its essence, authoritarian. It is really the argument of skepticism, that is to say, we cannot really uh, know with surety how people, what human nature is, or how people should live. We cannot uh, determine those questions absolutely. That what we can only be certain of is what has been called certain uncertainty, and that is that we cannot know definitively. Uh, that there is a template or a pattern arise through whatever technique to describe how it is that human beings ought to live, whether they want to or not. And it's that foundation or that glue that brings the other elements into showing the characteristics of modern uh, liberalism. You find that argument a certain uncertainty which starts basically with, with Humboldt and Mill in the 19th century, you know, how do people which is Karl Popper and Miss Holman, uh, Stuart Hampshire, and Edmund yeah. Berlin. The result of the event, uh, the intellectual foundation led, I think, to a variety of famous pretests for liberalism by the, by the mid 1950s. And all, all of the all of the subsidiary principles of the liberal philosophy flow from a basic belief in the value of the freedom of individual choice and conviction that respect for the primacy of the interest of individual citizens is the foundation of critical processes and purposes. Its legacy to contemporary liberalism includes the following precepts. The equality of all members of society 
rather than class, religious ethnic or self distinction as the order and principle of government. The recognition of individual rights, rule of law, and democratic structures as a means to the equal protection of the citizen's interest. Insistence on a secular rather than a spiritual or ideological role for government. A belief in freedom of thought and expression, intolerance, and the promotion of diversity as means both to individual fulfillment and the generation of progress. An attachment to property rights and the structure of free and competitive market economy as the best generator, generator of economic growth and prosperity and the need for government to provide the legal framework to maintain the free and fair working of that economy. An obligation on government to ensure that the pursuit of private sector purposes does not generate extraneous, adverse social consequences and thus abandons the common good. And government should not only ensure that the pursuits, uh, excuse me, the government should not only ensure security and stability in society, but also play an active role in expanding opportunity for individuals by programs such as infrastructure development, education, research, and the provision of essential public services at affordable rather than unregulated costs. A commitment to ensuring that the benefits of living correctly in a liberal society are used to help achieve the conditions of social justice by narrowing the disparity of opportunity between those who are disadvantaged and those who are fortunate. And finally, and that's especially important, pragmatism in pursuing and balancing these goals under the heart. These characteristics of liberalism are especially appropriate to the social and political conditions of the calendar. It applies diversity, federal system, charter of rights, rule of law, democratic institutions, multiculturalism, historically active role for government and economic development, government provision of quote, essential services, and concern for government as a means to social justice, uh, uh, which are rooted our geography, in our geography, history, and cultural tradition. Uh, the banker then goes on to discuss uh, fairly briefly how the Liberal Party took this framework of theoretical liberalism, which are so appropriate to the pluralism of Canadian society, and applied it in practice to the conditions of Canada. And there's a brief description of the, uh, if you, you consult this, and looking at the uh, proceedings and the resolutions of the various national conferences that were held and the platforms of the Liberal Party, which were on them. And you can see that the, those principles of liberalism were made manifest in, uh, in an extraordinarily successful um, implementation. Of liberalism, of liberalism in a working fashion. Uh, it accounts, I think, for the uh, continuing success of the Liberal Party. The success of the Liberal Party uh, has not been as a result of some malign or extraordinary fit of the electoral process. It has been essentially because the Liberal Party has been better than its political opponents at understanding and defining and representing that multitude of liberal interests, which are, that's right, such a characteristic of the liberal society. But if uh, liberalism has such a convincing intellectual foundation, and if its principles are almost ideally feed to the conditions of Canada, and if its implementation through the succession of liberal governments has been so successful, how can one account 
for the disillusion with liberalism, and large liberalism, that occurred from the mid-1980s almost to the present day. The happy and inflated celebration of liberal political policies became from the 1980s on contested on all sides. And in the world's democracy, the, the emergence of a multitude of new movements, neoliberal, new conservatives, ecological and environmental parties, libertarian, personal development groups, um, parties and collectivism, a whole range of new religious cults. And liberalism no longer seems to be the automatic task using quality features. It has been a fought on practical grounds, it has not worked, and on ideological grounds that its values or professionalities are uh, empty or a distortion of reality. It will be tempting, and perhaps to some extent correct, to argue that liberalism has become more doubted because it in fact has worked, that it seeks to provide opportunities for the disadvantaged, and to the extent that it succeeds in giving that opportunity and creating prosperity, it produces a society where people are better off. It therefore, to some extent, makes plants the seeds of its own frustration as a focus for the later society shift to those who are no longer disadvantaged but have advantages they wish to conserve and protect. The impulse for liberal policies of redistribution may be weakened. But it is not only the advantage of some to suspect liberalism, the disadvantage to these are the values that espouses belief in an egalitarian society conflicts with the real distribution of ownership and wealth about oppressed by the appearance of the real distribution of ownership, wealth, and power in our political and economic right does not correspond to the ideals of democratic symbols. The middle classes as well have their expectations that they are entitled to regard the serial rewards of good rights and that their traditional position in society will be respected. But they bear a heavy tax burden and they become more and more suspicious that their tax burden is departing inefficient, wasteful government policies to go into life. So liberalism is not simply a victim of its past success. Its problems are also rooted, are rooted in the nature of the changing nature of our society, particularly the substance and faith of change. And so it, it is that the conventional wisdom that has supported liberalism and its policies began to change. The characteristic of conventional wisdom is not that it is necessarily wise, but so it is convenient. Uh, by the mid-1980s, the precepts of liberalism also no longer seem convenient. That is, they no longer seem to be successful. The old liberal approaches, which had supported Prosperity in the post-war years, even not to work in the new world of the 1980s, the world of stag stagflation, the problems implementing things in economics, in the very open society, the huge face of the huge deficits and, and their impasse was being created by the uh, Vietnam War and Johnson's decision to pursue the great society at the same time by the shock of OPEC increases. The, the fine tuning of the economy to microeconomic management proved a difficult choice. It's hardly surprising that in the context of social frustration and economic confusion, the vacuum was filled by the policies of new conservatism, with a proud disdain for the public realm and the attractive notion 
that the new problems of political and economic management were too complicated for government to manage, and we were assured that the simple technique of market fundamentalism would set all problems to waste. One had only to dismantle the role of government to rescue capable hands of unfettered markets, reward the able, allocate resources to society that would ultimately, through social Darwinianism, be for the collective good. The political faith of that neoconservatism is presented by Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, but an intellectual establishment gave it respectability. Both the and on the economic side, in his rejection of Keynes and economics in favor of monetarist theory, political theorists like Robert Posick argued on the basis of the primacy right for a minimal government and against any role of the state in redistribution, indeed, for any role allowed in the provision of theory. Even the most feminine of contemporary liberal thinkers, John Rawls, argues for the acceptability of growing disparities in wealth between the rich and the poor. And the precepts of neoconservatism were strongly reinforced by the establishment of right-wing thinking, especially in the United States, and a calculated attempt to provide information and academic respectability for the positions of privilege. Few countries uh, in the Western world were immune from these developments, certainly not Canada, and I go on to describe some of the, the uh, specific problems which became more and more evident by the time they reached the 1980s. The, uh, the uh, inability, uh, let's say, the lack of credibility uh, of uh, economic management, decade dominated dominated by low productivity, high inflation, and high unemployment, hardly seemed to be a good argument for the cyclical economic management which liberals had claimed. Uh, the uh, belief in the large uh, government to be an efficient or effective management became increasingly disputed with the enormous expansion of government departments, the plethora almost uncountable of foreign corporations. And the growing understanding of the limitation on the effective administration and management in the public sector. And third, the foundation of the use of mass expenditure programs, which informed the essential network of social security inside of it, seemed unlikely to be sustainable on the basis of simply the automatic pool of the prosperity of the economy. In other words, current prices change would have to be made. I then go on to suggest, however, that the, the conservatives or the neoconservative approach, both in philosophy and in practice, has fallen far short of what his advocates would have suggested, um, should have, um, should have occurred. Traveling in both Canada and the United States, it's sad that governments with enormous debt loads. In both countries, it's dead to a growing gas as he knows who are rich and those who are poor. In both countries, it has undermined democratic politics by creating independence from corporate. The criticism of liberal and this is the conclusion. The criticism of liberalism over the past few decades, many of them justified, are not substantially effective criticism of the structure of liberal beliefs and purposes, but rather criticism of technique. The underlying principles of action remain sound, the specific application on faulty. That is an argument not for the rejection of liberal principles, but for a more intelligent use of method to achieve goals. The times are changing. 
we are now moving away from a time when selfish purpose was esteemed as the overriding value, culture and Zubert Irish, and as a result of uh, the period of uh, important problems circumstances, we are moving toward the time in which responsibility to try as a society, to the nation, to fellow beings, returns to the front line of thought and discourse. There is, therefore, once again, an openness to liberal approaches. We do not need a grand new political idea. Today's big new idea often is tomorrow's lust. We do not need an overarching intellectual structure, for we already have one which has served us well, still corresponds to the values of most Canadians. We do not need novelty simply for false and sin. But that does not mean we do not need new ideas. On the contrary, it is vitally important to use our intellectual imagination, our knowledge, and our experience to come forward with new pragmatic approaches to the inevitably difficult problems we face in this country. Those new approaches, I am certain, are going to be found within the framework of historical liberalism. It's my hope that this conference will hope so that this conference will help promote your discovery. Thank you very much. Richard, and thank you, thank you, Tom and John and Howard and those who brought together another rendition of New Liberalism. Uh, I was thinking as I looked around the table that my first New Liberal experience was at the Goya conference in Peterborough. Uh, for those of you who are not part of my generation, we did off your ass conference, which uh, I thought was uh, probably a driven uh, academic of uh, New Liberals you could possibly think about. I also know some things that are things. Having assembled all those living think things, the one thing that the ton of the models with talking machine when you get plugged in uh, at the beginning. Now, we had to tell this design to keep those raw, rough and uh, tongue on for the coffee break. Here now, there's pressure on me to make sure I finish before the coffee break, otherwise, it'll be a full scale liberal development. Actually, I feel much more comfortable being here, having been a Western liberal for so long. Being a moving target comes in that place in the United Sitting in a seat in downtown Florida, I always thought it was just a little risky uh, for someone of my background. So we thank you all for joining us and for having us here. And I'm grateful for uh, John Robert to have to open up with a, a broad, theoretical, philosophical position. Uh, the last time I lectured in this room, um, I was... Uh, Spoken to fast by one of the senior professors of this faculty, uh, who, uh, challenged me by saying, well, actually, human security may work in process, but doesn't work in theory. I tried to drive it up the theory out of the way first thing in the morning, so I can get on with, I hope, would be the practice of liberal. Uh, I think that face value, the, uh, the admonition of the title, searching for a new liberalism. It doesn't take muddling things for new liberalism or dancing on your toes for new liberalism or hating into the corners for new liberalism. It says, search it. And the very act of a search means you have to hit certain junction points, certain crossroads, a certain barrier, and you have to make choices. Uh, you can't avoid simply slipping and sliding or finding some way in which to uh, cover up the, uh, the various pathway uh, with brush fire or smoke screen. So what I'll talk about this morning is here is quite some consequences in the way Canada conducted the quality international. I'm going to start by giving you a, a quote, which I think set out to check the quote. The first quote issued last Friday by 
President Bush, and he and I tried to quote directly to make sure that he's no misunderstanding. He said, our forces will be strong enough to destroy potential adversaries from pursuing military buildup in the hope of attacking or equaling the power in our states. And forestall and prevent such hostile acts by our adversaries, the right people, if necessary, act preemptively. It's probably the most dramatic restatement of the strategic documents of initiative in the innocence of containment theory in the mid-1940s. It pretty much sums up the description for tax Americana, totally to determine by military activity, uh, the use or threat of use by our supercar neighbor. It is, uh, it's probably the right, uh, sort of talk, so ask you how to describe it in probate terms. Well, we're the hub and the rest of the world is the spoke. Pretty much there defines where that particular doctrine and theory gets its root. And of course, as we would expect, the shattering conservative thoughts in this country have been actively persuading us that we have no choice but to join that parade. It's just too bold, too powerful, too mighty, and our interests are too tied up that we don't have that freedom of choice. Continue the cult things. And I didn't quote. These terrorist attacks are a further horrifying indication of the pervasiveness of threats to people's safety, rights, and lives. And as the international community faithful in conditions of these tragic events, we must recognize that innovative international approaches are needed to address growing forces of global insecurity, remedy its symptoms, and prevent the recurrence of threats to affect the daily lives of millions of people. Unlike many of the outpourings, the theories, and the official statements that took place in the dark days of whole September 11th, this is not a rousing call to arms seeking retaliation or revenge. Do not hold the right of an aggrieved country to protect its sovereign national boundaries. Is it not a certain need to strengthen interest or amass overwhelming military power? Instead, it recognized the widespread nature of the problem and called for innovative international answers. Most important, it put the threat to people, the risk to individuals as a central issue. This is a statement that was issued by a group called the Human Security Network Association, a group in a 13 countries, founded in 1999 by initiative of Canada and Norway. Its purpose at that time is to collaborate and cooperate on concrete security matters, such as these that were on the international agenda, like our very small arms treaty, protection of children, international similar work. This group of like-minded nations works from the premise that the basic right or chief of the rhythm freedom can share is challenged by each two overwhelming threats. The uncontrolled force of state violence and the newer mercury dangers arising from a global underworld of human traffickers, traitors, and terror. As we all know, the advice of the human security network was not heated. I mean, the war on anti-terrorism has become the dominant overarching abrupt of the United States and scientists tell us that everything else the world pushing out most other issues to the five stage. It's given license to a variety of interventions, massive increase of expenditure of arms, a justification for a severe limitation on human rights, and all the kinds of nasty threats from the very teaching English as processed by a key proponent. Counterterrorism is a key thing, without any question or reservation. The little parts of loyalty, you either force or against it, its primary military response, 
non-collaborative approach, and to finally oppose remote forms and international efforts that all seem to solution. To the witness of Ethan Trent to summon to undermine the international criminal court. It gives renewed vigor to the apostles of Vial policy, brings over the throttles, all of those who find notions of humanitarian cooperation, international justice and the rule of law, to be anathema, given birth to a doctrine of preemption, which irrigates and outtakes the right to be judge, jury, and prosecutor against any country or any person it considers a threat, running contrary to the half the century of international law. Under the start of the American This assertion of preemption sets in trouble the the right of any strong state to move against an Eastern neighbor solely on the basis of its own calculation, subject to no other control or calculation, otherwise known as the Hobbesian law of the jungle. As such, it is inexorably the further crisis that will continue to expand the orbit of danger. Tolerate cycles of violence as you are beginning to cease to be intending assassin in Iraq. Now, I want to make the approach to you today is the rules that this approach is a mistake. We want to successfully combat terror and all those others who threaten the security of innocent people to get on commuter airplanes and find themselves becoming a projectile going into a building. Or the children in northern Uganda, part of a program that we're running through our center, trying to deal with the lonely of a war that's going on that no one recognizes, that shares about, that CNN isn't there, the bomb victims in the Middle East, or kidnapped civilians in Colombia, then I think we need to carefully consider the common sense and pragmatism of the approach of the foot quality in that statement by the Human Security Network of 13 other countries. You have been listening to The Life of a Servant, a Dennis Mills podcast. Visit DennisMills.com for more information and archived episodes of this program.